Take your copy of God's Word and open to Ezekiel chapter 33. We did begin looking at this chapter last Wednesday. Jacob preached verses 1 through 9 this evening. I want to look at verses 10 through 20. Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 10 through 20. Let's read through this passage. And you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, Thus have you said, Surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we rot away because of them. How can we live? Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? And you, son of man, say to your people, The righteousness of the righteous shall not deliver him when he transgresses. And as for the wickedness of the wicked, he shall not fall by it when he turns from his wickedness and the righteous shall not be able to live by his righteousness when he sins. Though I say to the righteous that he shall surely live, yet if he trusts in his righteousness and does injustice, none of his righteous deeds shall be remembered, but in his injustice that he has done, he shall die. Again, though I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, yet if he turns from his sin and does what is just and right... If the wicked restores the pledge, gives back what he has taken by robbery, and walks in the statutes of life, not doing injustice, he shall surely live, he shall not die. None of the sins that he has committed shall be remembered against him. He has done what is just and right, he shall surely live. Yet your people say, the way of the Lord is not just, when it is their own way that is not just. When the righteous turns from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. And when the wicked turns from his wickedness and does what is just and right, he shall live by this. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not just, O house of Israel. I will judge each of you according to his ways. I've spent the greater part of the week studying through this passage, I've hired out hirelings like Blake Thompson and Brian Farley and Jacob West to try and help me work through the depths of this rich text. Back in 2018 at Together for the Gospel, Kevin DeYoung preached a sermon entitled, The God Who Is Not Like Us. Why we need the doctrine of divine immutability. The primary reason I mentioned that sermon is because of his title, The God Who Is Not Like Us. If you've never listened to that sermon, I would suggest you did. I've listened to it a number of times and it has blessed me every single time. But when we refer to that doctrine, that, that God is not like us, we speak of His holiness. God is separate from us. He is unlike us. He is other than us. We really have a very difficult time even comprehending God's holiness. We tend, 
as humans, really no matter our doctrinal persuasion, to create a God in our minds, a God we can wrap our minds around and then shove Him into the pages of Scripture. In our generation, this often comes out as, I think God wants me to be happy, which is translated as God is okay with my sin because I want Him to be okay with it. The problem is that is patently false. God's holiness cannot tolerate sin. But that liberal view of God is not the only distortion of God's character. We are conservatives, so we aim that direction often. But the pendulum swings to the other extreme as well. And there is this view of God which is also inaccurate. For instance, during the Dark Ages, Roman Catholicism sold a version of God that was only anger and wrath, and they used that fear to keep their followers indebted to the church. That meant that the church retained power. It also meant that the church got filthy rich. Enter an Augustinian monk by the name of Martin Luther. Luther was brought up in the Catholic cult. He was brought up to believe that God was angry with him. It was impressed upon him from a very early age. But unlike many Catholics, he was truly struck with the righteousness of God. Luther saw God as one to be feared, to be, to be afraid of, really. And he spent his life trying to appease him through all types of personal torture, we call that asceticism in theological circles. It, it was said that L Luther lived on a scant diet, wore rough clothing, had vigils by night, labored by day, mortifying the flesh by sleeping on the cold floor without blankets. But he found no peace for his soul. In addition to all of that asceticism, Martin Luther kept all of the religious requirements that the Catholic Church required of him, including all the menial tasks associated with being a monk. Later, after he was truly converted, Luther wrote this, quote, I was a pious monk, and so strictly did I observe the rules of my order that I may say, if ever a monk got to heaven through monkery, I too would have gotten there, end quote. So rather than believing God wants me to be happy, like liberals view today, Luther essentially believed God wants to destroy me. And that too is a perversion of the God of Scripture. Now God is certainly angry with sin, but He has extended mercy and grace to us through the death of His Son, and so we are thankful. The truth is, God has purposed good for us, eternal bliss, but that does not mean wallowing in our sins. God is a just judge. God is angry with the wicked every day. And yet, God is the God of all grace who has gifted us with the greatest gift imaginable, the gift of eternal life through Jesus and His sacrifice at Calvary. Here's the issue. And this text is going to bear this out. We cannot fully grasp God with a finite mind. When we try to make God completely understandable, 
we actually miss the awesomeness of God which should put us on our knees. The text before us this evening has sort of a difficult teaching. But it's not precisely the same as license versus legalism that I've talked about today. That God wants me to be happy versus God is trying to destroy me. This text is difficult in that it is related to God's work in salvation. More specifically, His attitude towards the wicked. I hope that makes more sense as we work through this this evening. Just a a heads up, we're going to work through the text first and then I'm going to circle back at the end and talk about a number of things. So when I say something like, in conclusion, that doesn't mean we're leaving right then. But the text will go quickly. So though you inquiring minds are going to have to wait, you won't have to wait terribly long, I promise. Now just a reminder of the context. The, The last stand for the nation of Israel is at its end. In fact, in the very next section, in verse 21, a fugitive from Jerusalem will inform Ezekiel, the city has been struck down. Look, things are bleak. The prognosis is bad. The outlook actually could not be worse. But Ezekiel, as a watchman, we looked at that last week, right? Ezekiel, as a watchman, is still to preach the word of Yahweh to the people. And so that's what we find here. The name of this sermon is The Gospel to the Wicked. And in this text, set in the midst of punishment for generations of rebellion, God actually defends His holiness with a promise of grace. All right, let's get into this. Verse 10, on the heels of that instruction for Ezekiel to be a watchman, we read this, And you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, You have said, Surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we rot away because of them. How can we live? So it begins by saying, and you. Some translations actually render this here, Therefore, there is obviously this link to the previous text in which Ezekiel is commissioned as a watchman. So this is the word that Ezekiel, the watchman, is to preach to the people. Now look, God had told them up front, way back, way back when He gave them the Old Covenant law, that if they turned to other gods... Everything that has happened to them was going to happen. This should not have been a surprise. All of these curses would come upon them. Well, they had been brought to fruition because they had continually been in unrepentant sin. I mean, God had sent them prophet after prophet after prophet, and they'd said, go away, go away, go away. We might well say their sin had certainly found them out. Now... For the first time in what seems like decades, it appears the people here, at least the captives in Babylon, have acknowledged that their own transgressions and sins have brought this judgment upon them. Notice, you have said, surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us. We rot away because of them. How can we live? And we studied through the book of Jeremiah for 40 years. Jeremiah seemingly preached without ever convincing one person 
that God was going to bring judgment on them because of their sins. You can't find a convert under Jeremiah's ministry. But here, finally, somebody seems to have gotten it. But before we're finished tonight, we're going to see that not everybody got it. So they said, We rot away because of our transgressions and our sins. No doubt they're referring to captivity in Babylon here. And so they asked the question, How then can we live? How can we go on? How can we survive? The Assyrians had destroyed the northern kingdom a century earlier. Now the southern kingdom of Judah had fallen, and it appeared... Israel was finally done in because of their spiritual adultery, because they refused to give up their pagan gods. It's all over. But all hope is not lost. There is yet good news, and we find that good news in verse 11. God says, Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? How can we live, they have asked. Well, here is God's personal response to that question. And it begins with an oath. God swears by His own life, not His omniscience, not His omnipotence. No, He swears by His own life. As I live, God says, as I live, declares God, Yahweh, the sovereign Yahweh, we might render it. And God says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Listen, God is not some morbid, sadistic God who delights in punishing people. That is not the God that we serve. That's how Luther saw God before conversion. That's what the Catholic Church taught about God so they could separate their followers from their money. But that is not the God of Scripture. God, by His own oath, says that He does not delight in the death of the wicked. For the record, the Hebrew word here rendered pleasure, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, it is sometimes rendered as desire or will. So in this sense, God does not desire that the wicked should perish. On the contrary, notice, God takes pleasure in what the wicked man should do, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. That is what God takes pleasure in. That is what God desires. That is what God delights in. And this is best evidenced in the fact that God has given us the very best that He has to give. Jesus, His only Son, to die in the place of sinners. And all who latch on to Him by faith are guaranteed rescue from the penalty of their sins. Eternal life with Him. That is our God. Praise the Lord. That is our God. 
Well, the first part of this verse is the general truth. As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. That's the general truth. Then comes the application to Israel. So, if God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live, here's what this means to these Jewish captives. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? Look, this is bleak. The northern kingdom is in captivity, have been scattered. The southern kingdom has now been taken down. But even at this late hour when all hope seems lost, there is still good news, the gospel. And here Ezekiel preaches it to national Israel. And we know from biblical history they will be delivered out of Babylon and they will return to their land following this captivity. But more more on that later. Let's move on. Verse 12. And you, son of man, say to your people, The righteousness of the righteous shall not deliver him when he transgresses. And as for the wickedness of the wicked, he shall not fall by it when he turns from his wickedness. And the righteous shall not be able to live by his righteousness when he sins. Now, this is so similar to Ezekiel 18, which I preached several months ago because they make me preach all the hard chapters. Anyway, there the stress is on individual accountability and victimization where they claimed they were the victim. They accused the Lord of punishing them for the sins of their fathers. We haven't done anything wrong. It's our ancestors that messed up. Remember that? They blamed God. The stress here is similar. Well, as a watchman, Ezekiel is instructed to tell them sin will destroy any righteousness a man may possess according to the law. But again, there's hope. Look, if a wicked man repents, that's what turns from his wickedness means here, repentance. If a wicked man repents, there is a promise that he shall not fall by it. In other words, he shall not fall by his wickedness. Now let me reiterate this. We've mentioned this. Brian, again, preached on repentance during our, sermon, our, our summer conference. Great sermon, and I've thought about it so many times since. But repentance is not stopping evil and doing godly things. That's not what repentance is. I heard a so-called Baptist preacher say that a while back, sadly. It's hard to fathom. But to define repentance that way is to promote a works salvation. I mean literally a works salvation. In order to be saved, you have to stop doing X and start doing X. Like that's not biblical. We are saved by grace alone. We don't add anything to that. Repentance is merely a change of mind. Now it results in works. Yes, but repentance in and of itself is just a change of mind towards one's own sin, towards God, and toward the Lord Jesus Christ. Here in this text, these people have defended themselves for generations against God, demanding they were the ones in the right. And that meant they believed God was the one in the wrong. 
Even down in verse 17, look what God knows they're saying. Yet your people say the way of the Lord is not just when it is their own way that is not just. So even now at this juncture in time when all of this has come upon them, some of them still had their minds set on being right. And so the Lord commands them to repent, to change their mind, to take to take sides against themselves and against their own sins, to take the Lord's side. That's, that's what this means here. There's more though. Let's move on. Verse 13. Though I say to the righteous that he shall surely live, yet if he trusts in his righteousness and does injustice, none of his righteous deeds shall be remembered, but his, in his injustice that he has done, he shall die. Again, though I say to the wicked, you shall surely die. Yet if he turns from his sin and does what is just and right, if the wicked restores the pledge, gives back what he has taken by robbery, walks in the statutes of life, not doing injustice, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the sins that he has committed shall be remembered against him. He has done what is just and right. He shall surely Live. Again, this is all very similar to Ezekiel 18. I, actually, if you, if you want an in-depth study of all of this, go back and listen to that particular sermon if you have significant questions. First things first, this righteous man that is mentioned here in this text is not sinless in and of himself before God. That is not at all what's going on. He is not justified in God's sight by his own merits. That's not what's being taught here in these verses. To call him righteous merely means that he is trying his best to follow the old covenant law. That's, that's what he's not a murderer. He's not a thief. He, he's not doing the things that the law tells you not to do. The plain and simple meaning is he's, he's trying to follow the law. Now there were penalties for breaking the Mosaic Code. Some of those were death. If you killed another person, you died. You were put to death. If two people committed adultery, they were put to death. Any amount of righteous living could not save a murderer from that death penalty. That's the point here in this text. God has given them this perfect law. There's nothing unjust about the law. On, on the flip side, if a rebellious person repented which, by the way, as you saw here in the text, uh, he, he does what's just and right. He restores the pledge. He gives back what is taken by robbery. He walks in the statue of life. Repentance is evidenced in his attempt to follow the Mosaic Code. Then if the rebellious person repents, he shall save his life. He shall not die. Why is God saying all this? All God is saying is, I'm not punishing anybody unjustly. I am a just God. Now that was true back in Ezekiel 18 before the destruction of Jerusalem. And that's still true here, even after Jerusalem has fallen. Individuals were still responsible to God, even though the nation has now been wiped out and they've all been taken into captivity. Nevertheless, as we're going to see, some of the people still refuse to acknowledge their own sin. They refuse to repent. Look, notice verse again, verse 17. Yet your people say, the way of the Lord is not just, when it is their own way that is not just. Some of these people retained their 
Pride. That's been the problem with the Jews all through this book. You remember, he's pointed back to Sodom. He says the problem with Sodom was, was actually rooted in pride, and that's your problem, Israel. You are prideful. These people refuse to acknowledge their own sin, pointing a finger at God, suggesting He's treating them unfairly. That's what they're saying. The way of the Lord is not just. God says, no, your way is not just. And God is the authority. You might remember back in Ezekiel 18. Here's what it says in, in chapter 18, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel, but behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. The individual responsibility. These children were saying that they were being treated unfairly. Their teeth were set on edge because the fathers had eaten sour grapes. So they're saying we're just getting the punishment that is actually due the previous generation. That's what they're saying, but they are wrong. They're refusing to accept any personal responsibility. But God is saying, I'm not punishing anyone unjustly. And He never does. It is outside His nature. It is outside His ability to punish someone unjustly because He is holy and righteous. He can't do that. And so He repeats Himself in verse 18. Look, when the righteous turns from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. When the wicked turns from his wickedness and does what is just and right, he shall live by this. God is just. Men are not being judged unfairly. When men die... It is their own doing. Look, God is willing to forgive. If a person will merely turn to Him in repentance and faith and receive the provision that He has supplied. So to suggest God is unjust is unfathomable. And yet that's the very thing these people are saying here. And that's the very thing that is often said in our own generation. That y'all's God is unjust. Well, then notice how this section ends. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not just, O house of Israel. I will judge each of you according to his ways. So despite their accusation against God and His holiness, they're going to be judged by Him. Each of them, individually, notice that language here. I will judge each of you, individually, according to their ways. Listen, no human being has a right to judge God. He is the Creator, and we are creatures. And no matter what charge you may levy against Him, it can't stick. He is the judge. He is the ruling authority. We might as well accept those terms whether we like them or not because it's a fact. And like these people, if we refuse God's terms, we will be judged for our ways just like He is threatening for them to be judged for their ways. Okay, so what is being said 
throughout all of this. I know you look at your watch and you're like, wow, we may get out for gun smoke tonight. <laughs> the younger generation doesn't know what that means. I've got, I've got quite a bit of, of, of concluding thoughts, so let me say this. Let me say this again. God is not like us. And thank God for that. He is righteous and He is just. In fact, we can speak of God's holiness by saying that He is distinct from us. He is other than us. Or as I've continued to say this evening, He is not like us. That is a major point in this chapter. These people were wrongly accusing God, wrongly judging God as if He was one like them, like us, as if He conducted Himself in a way that a human being might conduct themselves. And yet they had God all wrong. I said earlier, it's, it's often exposed that mankind has created a God or gods of our own imagination. Some have created a God they believe people will like so that they can build bigger ministries. We call those people liberals, right? Others have created a God with the most strict rules imaginable so that they can view themselves as spiritually elite, superior to everybody else. We call these people legalists or even cultists. Others, non-churchgoers, have created a God who is a mean monster so they can hate Him and therefore they can live their lives like they want to. But the God of Scripture is very much unlike us, and He is unlike anything men have ever dreamed up, religious or otherwise. You know, we have this desire, I think, we're here reading the book that God has given us, the revelation that He has given us. We have this desire to comprehend God, but sometimes, oftentimes, when our own doctrinal convictions are challenged, we study a text like this and we have to say, okay, I haven't got it all figured out. There is a dilemma in this passage, a tension in the text that we struggle to rationalize. First, it is God who saves. It is God who saves. God is the author of our salvation. It is God who has given us life. It is God who sovereignly opened our heart to the gospel and enabled us to believe and trust Christ. An honest reading of the Bible cannot arrive at any other possible conclusion. However, as this text bears out, there is a genuine author of salvation through the gospel. And all who repent, turning from confidence in their own selves to God, trusting Jesus by faith, all who repent will most certainly be saved. That is a promise every time the gospel is preached. So there is a real offer when the gospel is preached. But this text goes beyond that. This is where it gets difficult for us to fathom. The God who is the author of our salvation, the one who has, has made us alive, who opened our heart, enabling us to believe and trust in Christ, 
That God swears by His own life here and says that He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from His way and live. And yet we know biblically not all will be brought to godly repentance. That's a tension for us. Even in the law, in the curses promised to Israel for disobedience, here's what God says to Moses. And as the Lord took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, so the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. That's a tension for a human mind. These, These two actions seem diametrically opposed to us, incompatible. And yet there is no contradiction in those things in the mind of God whatsoever. Let me say this again. God is quite unlike us. And the sooner that we realize that, the sooner we will accept the Bible the way that it reads without trying to explain things away. The text is right. It's as though God has two sets of lenses sometimes through which He views things. And yet, we know that's not true. God is God and He's consistent. The problem really is that we as finite creatures simply cannot think on the level God thinks. In Biblical Doctrine, which is a really thick theology book that came out a few years ago, edited by John MacArthur and Richard Mayhew, two very committed Calvinists, they write this, quote, Even though God has not chosen all, and even though the Son has not atoned for all, God nevertheless desires the good of all His creatures. And though God does take pleasure in the exercise of His justice against sin and evil, He does not maliciously enjoy meeting out punishment against His creatures. End quote. Amen. This text says that. That is not easy to grasp, but it's right here in Ezekiel chapter 33. God is not pleased in merely dealing out misery and suffering. God has a heart for the lost. God has a heart for the wicked. And when we don't have such a heart, we don't have the heart of God. So what does that mean for this text then? I mean, why does it matter? Why why am I explaining all this? Well... There's a couple of things in this text that I think are key. First, this text clearly contains a personal call to salvation. William Greenhill, an old commentator, recommended by Spurgeon on the book of Ezekiel, interestingly enough. But anyway, here's what he writes. Quote, Sinners, in what condition soever they be, have no cause to despond or despair of mercy so that they turn from their evil ways. Let them be great sinners, old sinners, sinners under judgments, ready to be destroyed and cut off by the hands of enemies as these were. Yet if they turn from their sins, there is hope of mercy for them. End quote. Amen. Listen, if the wicked perish, when the wicked perish, it is not because God is unwilling to save. Now if sinners go to hell, it is their own doing, not God's. Now let me be clear, this this text that we've looked at this evening does not teach a works salvation. 
period. None of us perfectly follow the law. And James writes, Whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. Repent then of your sins. Cast all your hope on Christ alone and you will certainly be saved. That is, that is a promise from the God of heaven who cannot lie. Look, the God of the Bible is abundant in mercy and willing to abundantly pardon. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. If you turn from yourself and trust in Christ alone, it's a free offer. It's a genuine offer. And if you receive it, you are assured forgiveness from the penalty of your sins. That is the gospel to the wicked that we find here in Ezekiel chapter 33. But there's another application. Remember, God took a general truth in verse 11 and He made a more specific application in this text. There is this application for corporate Israel as, as a people. Repent. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? Here they find themselves under judgment and God is still saying, Repent. Repent. Turn back from your evil ways and you will live, O house of Israel. That promise is relevant today because God's character has not changed. God is still the same God. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New. The God of the Old Testament is not this mean-spirited guy who likes to kill everybody and the God of the New Testament is loving and gracious. That's not it. God is God. He has always been God. Do you remember then Malachi 3.6? There it says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. And let me explain Malachi. Malachi was written well after this book we're studying this evening. Like Malachi is written... After Ezekiel, after the nation has returned to the land and Jerusalem has been rebuilt, yet they remained unfaithful. <laughs> that's, that's just how human beings are. Thus Malachi's ministry. God sends Malachi to the unfaithful returning generation. The message of Malachi 3.6 though is that though they were unfaithful, God wasn't. I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. God remained committed to His covenant with the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even though they weren't committed to Him. That's His point. Though 2 Chronicles 7.14 is often quoted and applied to America, you see it quoted all over the place on July 4th, ripped, kicking and screaming out of context. It is actually addressed to Israel as a promise. If they ever found themselves under the judgment of God, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. That's a promise to Israel, specifically Israel in judgment. Same promise we find here in Ezekiel 33. Repent and you will live. It's the same thing that Peter preached in Acts 3. 
after the Jews had murdered Jesus, after Jesus had risen from the grave and ascended to the Father, Peter preached to the Jews, Repent and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets long ago. So again, this is addressed to, to Israel. They had murdered their Messiah. Peter says, though, if they would repent... Jesus would return and all of the rest of the Old Testament prophecies that God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets long ago would be fulfilled. And if Zechariah is trustworthy, and we know it is, it's sure to happen. Zechariah 12.10, God says through Zechariah, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced. How in the world would Zechariah know Jesus was going to be... Oh, it's God wrote that. When they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Repentance is coming. For Israel, that's why Paul spoke about them being grafted back in in Romans chapter 11. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. That means the same God that promised Israel restoration for repentance in Ezekiel 33 still promised them the same thing through Peter in Acts chapter 3. God is trustworthy. All right, let me close with this. No matter whether you are talking about the salvation of an individual sinner or the true hope of a restored Israel, it cannot be accomplished through the Old Covenant law. We've already seen a hint of a better covenant, the New Covenant, back in Ezekiel 11. God said there, Therefore say... Thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered and I will give you the land of Israel. And when they come here, they will remove from it all the detestable things and all its abominations. Now listen to this. I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. That's the promise of the new covenant. We can't keep an external law. We need the Holy Spirit inside of us living the righteousness of Christ for us. We need Jesus paying for all of our shortcomings to the old covenant law because even redeemed sinners can't keep it perfectly. That was promised actually way before the prophets. Way before Jeremiah ever wrote of a new covenant in Jeremiah 31. Certainly before Ezekiel wrote of it in chapter 11 and later in chapter 36, which Lord willing we'll see in a few weeks. Even back in the law itself, in Deuteronomy 30, God promised, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Listen to this. 
that you may live. That's the message of Ezekiel 33. That promise can only be brought to fruition through the work of Jesus on the cross at Calvary. Look, what is here promised to the Jews and then we Gentiles have been grafted into it can only be accomplished by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing. The same hope that we have today is the same hope for Israel, the new covenant. I pray that that passage has been a a great help to you. Lord willing, we'll finish the chapter next week. Blake, will you dismiss us please, sir?